So this is the last talk in um, the series this week, and uh, it's called Buddhist Skepticism? Question <laughs> mark. Uh, it's already been uh, been mentioned that there seem to be um, resonances or uh, similarities between some of what we've been reading in these poems and other texts uh, with what we call uh, in the West uh, scepticism. Now the problem with uh, a lot of these terms like scepticism or being stoic about things or being cynical are all terms that have become somewhat debased in popular usage but derive from um, very uh, you know, uh, rigorous uh, ancient Greek philosophical schools. So the sceptics, um, which we're going to look at a little bit more as we uh, continue, um, uh, were basically uh, founded on the notion that we can never have complete certainty about anything. And there are many reasons for that. The, 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 the limits of our bodies, our brains, our language, uh, the extent to which we can know things, um, and so forth and so on. And I'm going to start with a, a passage from a book that someone on the retreat lent me a couple of days ago by a fellow called Robert M. Ellis. He's a philosophy, a philosopher, I would say. Um, has an ambiguous relationship with Buddhism um, but used to be, uh, I think, uh, a professed Buddhist. Uh, and he opens this book, which is called Truth on the Edge, with some reflections about scepticism. And for him, it's about always holding in mind the possibility that you might be wrong, that your views, your opinions may not actually provide the sort of certainty or conviction that they appear to. They may be not as solidly founded as you would like to think. So the possibility of being wrong, he writes, needs to be at the very basis of our philosophical attitudes. Let me just flag the word philosophical. Sometimes this can really put people off because you immediately think, oh no, we're going to go and do all that difficult stuff now that I never understand. That's philosophy. And that is a great shame. Uh, and it's true that academic philosophy has tended to become quite remote and esoteric from most people's everyday experience. And I feel that Perhaps one of the things that is of quite urgent need in our world is a recovery of a philosophy as a way of life, philosophy as a practice uh, that's open and available to all, not just professional philosophers. History, continues Alice, uh, is littered with examples of false certainty from the Crusades the Inquisition and fascism to the long-held certainty that the planet 
has inexhaustible resources meant for our use and an infinite capacity to absorb the effects of our activities. It's only the, recogni it's only the recognition that we may be wrong in some of these assumptions that can potentially restrain the hand which is inspired by false certainty about the future. So this again, I think, points to you know, views and opinions are not necessarily uh, positions or ideas that we've arrived at after careful deliberation and thought. Views and opinions are often inherited from our, our culture, our religion, our families, um, and then, and, and they become so embedded in us that we don't even think of them as views and opinions. We just assume that that's the way the world is. And the examples given here, we have to recall that there were many good people, just like us, who unquestioningly assented to the Crusades, the Inquisition, fascism without necessarily you know, having arrived at those conclusions themselves. So we are the inheritors of the views and opinions of our culture, our society, and the past. And by assenting to those views, almost unconsciously, we justify forms of behaviour that can have an enormously destructive effect. And so if we, if we constantly come back to this awareness that I think the poems were very much trying to suggest, namely that at a very fundamental level we don't know, there's a not knowing, that we, we simply cannot, uh, we're not the sort of creatures who can have the sort of certainty that really would only be possible for God. And likewise this not knowing is the inverse or the flip side of a kind of deep questioning. A couple of days ago, Martin introduced the question, what is this? I don't know, is utterly bound up in that question. If we question deeply and sincerely in a heartfelt way, we are, in effect... Um, basing our philosophical attitudes on the possibility of being wrong. We don't know. And that, I think, is what this practice uh, of mindfulness, awareness, Zen, is trying to somehow inculcate or um, uh, affirm another kind of foundational starting point for how we live in a deep, still don't know. But the corollary to what Robert Ellis says about how um, history is littered with the examples of false certainty, that things we now know, um, you know render many of those views untenable, the opposite has to hold true as well. We also have to acknowledge that we can have no certainty in the strict philosophical sense about the widely held views of environmentalists 
about the effects of climate change either. Now that's a lot more uncomfortable. Uh, we don't have any difficulty deploring the Taliban for being fanatics, but we must be careful to note that we too might hold views of a similar dogmatic nature about what we believe to be right, what we believe to be of the greatest urgency for humankind. It's always easy to condemn others. The, the fanatics are always other people. Dogmatists are other people. But I think we have to have the intellectual humility to recognise that dogmatism is everywhere. The potential for <laughs> con being convinced that our views are certain um, is just as much a danger for those who espouse what we think of as very good causes as those who espouse very, very destructive causes. So it's useful, I think, um, in a purely practical way to, to notice the reaction you have when some of the things you most deeply believe in um, are uh, challenged. Or someone says the opposite. What actually does it feel like in your heart? Do you feel an immediate kind of defensiveness or anger or resistance or denial or even hatred? I suspect that that sort of reaction is an indicator, a felt indicator of um, a commitment that you have to, to certainty about something. And it may not be justified. So again, I come back, I think, to the, um, the core question. Can we live a life of total commitment to a cause without that inner conviction that we are right? Can we live a life of total commitment to a cause without the inner conviction and certainty that we are right. Now, of course, you know, in many cases, I think people do commit themselves and do very brave and courageous and heroic, <laughs> self-sacrificing things because they are certain of the justification of their cause. So it's, it's an open question. And... We can see this tension between not knowing, questioning, having no opinions on the one hand, and on the other hand, requiring theories, um, explanations, doctrines, <coughs> views on the other. And we can see this actually being played out in the Atakavaga itself, and the chapter of the eights of which the poems were were four out of 16 of the chapters. I suspect the, the, the key original four chapters. But in some of the later chapters, particularly the one that I've also translated that I'm not going to go through, Quarrels and Disputes, if you read Quarrels and Disputes, you find yourself in a very different frame of mind. Because what that chapter is trying to do is offer us an explanation of why 
we get trapped in quarrels and disputes. And what it in fact offers is a kind of prototype for what later became the 12 links of dependent origination, which is the famous Buddhist theory as to how suffering comes about and by implication how it can then be brought to an end. Ignorance gives rise to conditioned activity, conditioned activity gives rise to consciousness, and on it goes. <coughs> now that is a dogma. That's not something that can either be uh, proven or falsified. Um, it's something you take on board if you are a, a believer, if you're a Buddhist. So we can see what happens even within the chapter of the eights is that the, the writer, and I don't honestly think it could possibly be the same author as the poems, but here's a man or a woman, we get, again don't know, trying to um, work out a theory of why we get caught up in views. This is the irony. Why do we get caught up in quarrels and disputes and views? And then, starting with a perception, um, sorry, starting with differentiation of the world that gives rise to perception, and perception gives rise to a sense of is and is not, of difference. That gives rise to liking and not liking, and that gives rise to quarrels and disputes. You can read the text. What's interesting in this text is that in the last three verses, there's a change of tone. And I'm going, just going to read the last three verses out. The last three verses remind us, in fact, that this chapter is a question-answer model. It starts with a question, why are there quarrels and disputes? There's a long answer which explains you know, why... You know, we find ourselves in these situations all the time. Then there's a pause, and then there's another question. We have one more question for you. <coughs> Do some of the learned opine that just this is the supreme purity of the soul? Or do they posit something else? So, in other words, the last section of the text concludes by saying, if you can enter into a state of neither perception nor non-perception or no perception or any perception, that will undermine differentiation. And if differentiation is undermined, then you won't get into this and that, is and is not, quarrels and disputes. So is that the supreme purity of the soul? Is that enlightenment, as it were? Or do the wise say something else is the highest state that humankind can achieve? And the answer comes in the, in the next two um, verses. Some of the learned do opine or do say that just that is the supreme purity of the soul, neither perception nor non-perception. While some, who are said to be good men, opine that it is the moment when there is no clinging. So other people say, no, that's not the highest state of enlightenment. The highest state of enlightenment is when you're in a state of no clinging or grasping. That's more the traditional orthodox Buddhist view. But then it's qualified in the final verse, which says, having understood these understandings to be dependent, 
in other words, whether it's perception or non-perception or not clinging, these nonetheless are conditions that come about dependent on other conditions there, impermanent states. The, so having understood these understandings to be dependent, the sage reflects upon dependency or contingency or conditionality. In other words, the sage is more aware of how these ideas and views come about rather than being attached to any one of them. So in other words, the sage, from this context, tries to see the bigger picture, tries not to get locked in to any stated opinion. But that doesn't mean the person just closes their ears and shuts their eyes and ignores what's being said, but tries to see how those views came about through circumstances. And this understanding frees him. He does not dispute. He doesn't say, he doesn't adopt a counterposition and then attack what's being said. And in conclusion, the wise have nothing to do with it is and it is not. So at this point in the text, there's a, uh, an awareness that actually we seem to have, have moved into positions and now we need to retract that a bit and remind ourselves of what, for example, was said in those four poems. But what I think this shows very clearly is that in reality, we're constantly, I think, on this edge. And particularly in the sort of discourse we find in Buddhism, early Buddhism. Um, this, this tension between, on the one hand, being open and undogmatic, uh, not holding fixed views and opinions. On the other hand, having to function in a world which requires us to hold positions and views and opinions. That's the dilemma, the inescapable dilemma, perhaps. Now, in the ancient world, and by the ancient world, I'm referring really to the uh, Eurasian ancient, ancient world uh, that extended from, from India through Persia into Greece, into the eastern Mediterranean area, to some extent through into Egypt. Um, we also find, and in fact it is right here that we find the origins of scepticism. Remember that in those times, and this is basically the time of the Buddha, fifth, let's just focus on the 5th century BC, there was no longer the sense, there, no, there was not yet the sense of the West and the East. Um, in fact, because of the Achaemenid Empire of Persia, this whole um, area from, from what is now Turkey, all the way to what is now Pakistan, um, was one empire. The largest empire the world had known up to that point, the Persian Empire. And it seems that there were certain commonalities of idea, of thinking, uh, that pretty much were found all over this area. Um, one of those ideas is the idea of, of reincarnation, 
of rebirth. It wasn't just that this was believed in India. You'll find it believed by, for example, Pythagoras uh, and many of the Greek schools. There's even a hint that Socrates, towards the end of his life, uh, thought in those terms. Or maybe that was just Plato, we don't know. Uh, Also the idea of karma, the idea that after death you will be born according to the fruits of your actions. That wasn't an exclusively Indian idea. It was an idea that was found throughout that um, civilized area of the world. Now that world came to an end in in, in, in a political sense with the um, invasions of Alexander from Macedonia, Alexander the Great, so-called, um, who, is, who basically conquered the Persian Empire and then shortly, within a few years of his death, it had been more or less broken up into little areas controlled by his generals. But when Alexander travelled on his expeditions of conquest, he also saw himself... Um, as a civilizing force, as imperial powers for some reason always do. It gives them a justification, perhaps. So he brought with him uh, uh, philosophers. And um, two of those we know the names of quite well, Anaxarchus and Pyrrho, were two of these philosophers. Um, The person I'm interested in is Pyrrho. That's P-Y-R-R-H-O. Pyrrho of Ellis. Now Pyrrho supposedly started out his life as a painter, as an artist. He then studied with Anaxarchus in Greece and travelled with him and as a result joined the expedition of Alexander where he is said to have associated with the naked philosophers in India and with the Magi or Magi I never know how to pronounce that Um, this is is ancient Greek source Uh, this is not it was understood um, for a very early period in Greece itself that Pyrrho was influenced by the philosophy of India. And according to Diogenes Laetius, who's one of the key Roman sources on these uh, figures, he seems to have practiced philosophy in a most noble way, introducing that form of it which consists in not knowing and suspension of judgment. Now, there's already, there's been for a long time, an awareness that this could well have been a Buddhist kind of practice. These were Buddhist ideas. And we have Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, The Will to Power, saying, although a Greek, Pyrrho was a Buddhist, even a Buddha. Now, I don't, again, the basis for making that claim is fairly slight, but nonetheless, that was an idea already there at the end of the 19th century. 
The problem is um, very little, if anything, of what Pyrrho said has come down to us in a reliable form. Um, he survives only in fragments. People like um, Seneca and, and uh, Cicero would occasionally occur to Pyrrho, somewhat, um, you know, sadly acknowledging that his teaching hasn't survived. So even shortly after his life, you know, there was no writings, he didn't write anything. And the only, the, 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 the key text uh, is basically a fragment that is not in Pyrrho's own words, but in the words of his disciple Timon, T-I-M-O-N. And that is, um, this passage is cited by a Greek author called Aristocles, a work of which has also been lost, but was quoted by one of the early church fathers called Eusebius in the 4th century, uh, who preserved for us this one fragment, which most scholars regard as the starting point to try to understand Pyrrho. I'm going to read it out. Pyrrho of Elis left nothing in writing, but his pupil Timon says that whoever wants to be happy must consider three questions. How are things by nature? What attitude should we have towards them? And what will result from having this attitude? According to Timon, Pyrrho declared that things are equally indifferentiable, unmeasurable, and undecidable. Therefore, neither our sensations nor our opinions tell us truths or falsehoods. We should not put our slightest trust in them, but be without judgment, without preference, and unwavering, saying about each thing that it no more is than is not, or both, or both is and is not, or neither is or is not. Sound familiar? <laughs> the result for those who adopt this attitude, says Timon, will first be speechlessness, aphatos, and then untroubledness, ataraxia. Personally, I find that these four poems we looked at seem to be so close in some ways to what is said about Pyrrho that um, one cannot help but feel that it's quite likely that the Indian gymnosophists, these so-called naked sages, which probably means wearing an awful lot less than the Greeks. <laughs> Whether they were literally naked or not, they could have been. There were Jains and other ascetics who wore no, no, no clothes. But very possibly, um, 
Piro picked up on this strand or this strain within early Buddhism. And again, it's, it's also supported by the fact that these poems are regarded internally within uh, Buddhism itself as of a very early date. In fact, I mean, this is a bit speculative, but in the passage in the Udana, where the monk comes to the Buddha from Avanti, and the Buddha asks him to recite a text, and he recites the Atakavaga, he recites these poems. What that lets us know is that the Atakavaga, the, the eights, must have been um, familiar in Avanti. Now, interestingly, Avanti is, in the, in the, is, the, is, is far west. It's more out in the region where the Brahmins would have been. It would have been closer in proximity to where Alexander and his army would have arrived 75 years later, after the death of the Buddha. So it's possible that that strain of thought that we find in the Eights may have had its origin in, in the western part of India. But another point that I think is crucial to flag here is that for Pyrrho and for the other Hellenist philosophers, Epicurus and the Stoics, philosophy was never just an abstract intellectual exercise. It was always a practice. And it's in that sense too that I feel there's a a commonality of concern or culture with the Indian ways of thinking, which are likewise, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or Jain, are never thought of just as intellectual theories, that they are always seen as integral to how we can lead a life in this world. And this is very explicit here, where... Um, this not putting our trust in our senses or in our opinions, um, suspending judgment, um, practicing not knowing, um, are essentially contemplative exercises. This is not something you, you just decide one day. Say, okay, I like that idea. Um, I'm not going to have any opinions anymore. I'm going to suspend my judge, judgment. Good, okay, next. You can't just sort of switch off your opinions. If you are to take this seriously, it requires a degree of, uh, of, 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 of inner discipline of some kind, some kind of training, some kind of commitment to a praxis. And the result for those who adopt this attitude will first be aphatos, speechlessness, and then ataraxia. Now, in some of the Western uh, commentaries on this passage, uh, they understand speechlessness to be a kind of astonishment. You, you, your mouth... You just can't say anything anymore. A kind of a shock therapy. Uh, the, the world appears to you in such a way that you are literally struck dumb with amazement. 
And I think that's a helpful way to think of this. I don't think it's just about not having words anymore in a neutralish kind of sense. But actually, once you uh, train yourself to be less caught up in your opinions and your thoughts and your views, and perhaps we experience this on a retreat like this, that the world, in a way, opens up for us in a new light. And to give an example of this, a friend of mine recently sent me um, a quotation from Franz Kafka. You do not need to leave your room, he says. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen. Simply wait. Do not even wait. Be quiet, still and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. Now that, to me, again, is a very contemporary 20th century, totally non-Buddhist uh, um, account of a highly sensitive artist, Kafka. And that, to me, again, captures, I think, very beautifully uh, the idea of a kind of speechlessness, which is achieved by, in Kafka's case, just sitting quietly at his desk. In the case of Piero, in the case of the Buddhists, it might have involved formal exercises in meditation. We don't really know. So, speechlessness, I think, perhaps, is that quality of, uh, of astonishment and wonder and awe at the sheer excess of life. And that is a reference to the idea of the sublime again. Um, but it's a, a framework of mind that, in a way, brings us into a, a deep intimacy with the unfolding of life within and around us at any moment, uh, in a way that we know we, we, we give up trying to label and conceptualize and hold on to it in this way. And I, I feel that this is a practical consequence of uh, trying to live from a perspective which is not driven by views and opinions. But that's only step one for uh, Timon slash Piro. Because what that leads to is ataraxia. A-T-A-R-A-X-I-A. -A -A. It's a beautiful word. And what it means is untroubledness. A is a privative, taraxia apparently means trouble or distress or disturbance. Non-disturbance, non-troubledness, which unavoidably, I think, reminds us of nirvana. If nirvana is, as defined, the ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion, then it's not surprising that it's also called uh, shanti, uh, peace, inner peace. So this astonishment 
then, as it were, allows us to rest in a, in a deeply peaceful, still, clear and aware state of mind in which we no longer are subject to that, those sort of troubling thoughts and emotions and feelings that are constantly spinning us off into stories, into fantasies, into anxieties, into plans and worries and so forth and so on. And ataraxia um, was the goal not only of the Pyrrhonists, but also of the Epicureans and the Stoics. This was what you practiced philosophy in order to achieve. And again, the, the parallels with the Buddhist approach are very, very striking. Now this ataraxia, this untroubledness, is not, however, an end in itself. It is a possibility, it, it provides us with another perspective or ground from which to respond to life. But a perspective or ground that is not uh, driven by one's uh, opinions and fixed views and ideas and beliefs and certainties. It's, it's grounded in this, the, the, this stillness, this untroubledness, this sense of astonishment that we're here at all. And a rather good example of how one might live in an ataraxia-like way uh, is found in a little story that is told by a later sceptic philosopher called Sextus Empiricus, um, who lived, was a Roman, lived in the first, second centuries AD. And he describes the, uh, the experience of ataraxia that's said to have occurred to the painter, a famous Greek painter called Apelles. And one day, Apelles was painting a horse and he was trying to paint the, the foamy saliva that <coughs> rushes from a horse's mouth when it's galloping. He wanted to get that effect with pain. And he got so frustrated in being unable to do it that he, pick up, he picked up the sponge that he used to clean his brushes and he threw it at the canvas. And he got the effect he wanted. <laughs> that produced a perfect foamy effect now this of course has got a sort of zen like quality to it um, but what's curious, what's interesting is that Sextus Empiricus um, sees that as uh, the possibility for a person who comes at life from the perspective of ataraxia in other words, although he's pissed off and angry and frustrated, that's, he's still grounded somehow in this untroubledness. <coughs> I don't quite get that, but <laughs> uh, the point, I think, is clear. Uh, that he's able, in a sense, to, to, to bypass his, his deliberate attempts to try to get the phone right, to give that up, I think, is the point being made. You stop trying to be deliberate, and in doing that, you open yourself up to a sort of spontaneity in which you just act and achieve the effect that you're after. 
But Hellenistic philosophy, as with Buddhism, took a similar turn towards dogma and certainty and truth. And just as we can see these early Buddhist poems which are quite radically non-dogmatic, nonetheless that did not prevent Buddhism evolving into sometimes extremely dogmatic uh, beliefs and views. And the same thing happened um, in, uh, in, 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 the, in the Greek world as well. Uh, apparently, figures such as Epicurus and the teacher of Epicurus were great admirers of Pyrrho. Uh, Pyrrho, although he didn't write anything or, or publicly teach much, he was um, revered for his lifestyle. He lived as a sort of hermit. Um, he had very, very, very few possessions. He lived very simply. He appears to have been able to put up with all sorts of difficulties and hardships without being terribly affected. He seemed to have achieved a degree, a rather remarkable degree of equanimity. And he was somehow a kind of role model for some of these later thinkers. But when we get to Epicurus, this is not much later, Epicurus and Pyrrha would have lived around roughly the same time in the 4th century BC. With Epicurus, we have a very clear move towards uh, dogma. Um, I'm actually not going to quote from Epicurus, I'm going to quote a passage from Lucretius, who was his Roman successor or follower about two and a half half centuries later. But this is how Lucretius describes uh, the Epicurean worldview. The universe's nature, he says, consists in essence of two different things. For there is matter and there is void, in which the particles of matter move hither and thither. The senses that men have in common prove in and of themselves that matter is Unless we place our firm faith in sensation, we shall have nothing to base conclusions on concerning what lies hidden from view. Nor could our reasoning confirm anything as true. Then further, if there were no place or space, that which we call the void, then particles would not have anywhere at all in which to be or move in any direction to and fro. Now I find what's interesting here is that the basis of the Epicurean theory of atoms and void, for Epicurus there was, ultimately, there were just atoms moving in the void. Atoms and void, that's it. Everything that we subsequently experience are configurations of atoms moving in the void. Now this is not light years away from the contemporary physics. But um, for the sceptics, this was a dogmatic position. But one can perhaps understand why one would arrive at those sort of conclusions to then build up theories of ethics and epistemology and so on. And it's quite, I think, also interesting that in the quarrels and disputes in the 12-link model, 
of how experience comes about as described in Buddhism, <coughs> it also starts with observing our sensory experience. Contact strikes the senses, or objects strike the senses that give rise to feelings, that give rise to grasping. So the Buddhists took their observations of sensory experience to develop a theory of how uh, craving and grasping arise and how that causes suffering. The Epicureans took exactly the same experience of their senses being impacted by other things to develop a theory of atoms and void. And in some ways, I feel that you find the same tendencies in, in early Buddhism as you find playing themselves out hundreds of miles away in, in Greece. A tension between the sort of scepticism of Pyrrho and the theories of the Epicureans and the Stoics. But what holds them all together, whether Buddhist or Greek, is the fact that they are seeking ataraxia in Greece, nibbana in India. A stopping, an untroubledness, a speechlessness, another foundation on which to lead your life. Now what happened to these Greek schools? And that includes Plato's Academy, the Lyceum founded by Aristotle, uh, the Stoa, the Stoic schools, the Epicurean schools that flourished for about 600 years and were the dominant forms of thinking and practice in much of the, um, uh, the Hellenistic and in the, then in the Roman world that followed, was that they were all shut down and suppressed by Emperor Justinian um, from Byzantium in the 6th century AD. In other words, the Christian church has just shut it all down and suppressed it. Some elements... Uh, some of the spiritual exercises that the Stoics in particular used were incorporated into Christianity. Uh, some of the ideas, like the Stoic idea of the logos, the sort of the governing principle or law of life, was incorporated into um, uh, Christian theology. And then later, of course, Aristotelian ideas became very important in the theology of Aquinas and medieval Christian thinking. But basically we enter what is sometimes called the Dark Ages, in which these ancient traditions were lost. And they only resurface in the, in the Renaissance, the Renaissance, uh, in the 15th, 16th century Europe, where these ancient texts are recovered from different sources. Many of them were tracked down in dusty shelves of monastery libraries in all different parts of Europe. If you want to read a really good story about this, read a book by Stephen Greenblatt called The Swerve. And it's the discovery, in fact, of Lucretius's poem, the one I've just cited, by uh, humanists in uh, Italy and in Germany and elsewhere during the 15th century. And one of the figures who um, 
uh, I think is, is particularly important in this Renaissance time um, is the French uh, po- politician, essayist, philosopher uh, Michel de Montaigne. A very good book on him was published last year in England called Montaigne, A, a Life in... Hmm? How to Live a Life, something like that, uh, by Sarah Bakewell. It's an excellent introduction to Montaigne. Now, what Montaigne did was that once he retired from his life as a politician, he was the mayor of Bordeaux, for example, um, he retired to his estate, which is only a few miles from where I live. I was actually, I visited it a couple of weeks ago. I go there on a sort of pilgrimage, actually. <laughs> you can go to his little town where he worked and wrote. It's been kept as he left it about 500 years ago. And um, what Montaigne tried to do was to practice uh, Pyrrhonism and Epicureanism, primarily. He was interested in these, these newly discovered Greek texts, not just out of intellectual curiosity, but because they offered a practice, something to do. He tried to live as a Pyrrhonist slash Epicurean. And um, in fact, the text he cites the most frequently in his essays is the poem of Lucretius uh, on the nature of things. But the spirit of his writing his sort of endless ability to just question what is going on, to not have a a preconceived, fixed view of the human person or God, but just with an open, questioning mind to inquire into the the sheer quiddity of his experience, I think is essentially Pyrrhonist in uh, persuasion. And I'd like to just read a couple of uh, quotes from Montaigne um, that uh, highlight this. Um, I could read it in the old French, but I won't. (laughs) Why do we give the title of being is estre? Why do we give the title of being to this instant that is nothing but a flash of lightning in the infinite infinite course of eternal night. In other words, a very clear example of uh, being suspicious about that primary term in our language, is. How can you say that something is if all it is, is... A flat, like a flash, this an instant which is like a flash of lightning in the infinite course of eternal night. Again, this slightly reflects the Epicurean idea that the, the, the past, the distant past, all of the myriad ages that have preceded us, is like a looking glass, a mirror for what will follow after our death. And therefore, death is nothing to be frightened of. There's no need to be afraid of death, because when we're dead, we won't be there to feel it 
And the only thing that can surely trouble us is what we're capable of feeling in a body, once the body's gone. So there's no need to be afraid of death. That's a very central tenet in in Epicurus. Another quote. If by chance you apply your thought to wanting to grasp its being, that will neither that will be neither more nor less than wanting to grab hold of water with your fist. In other words, being is utterly elusive. And this is precisely what Nagarjuna and other thinkers point to as well. That we think there's something solid and real out there or in here, but once we try to access it or pin it down, it disappears. So in that sense, there's a sort of critique here of uh, of the very core assumptions that we have, namely that I am, you are. Now again, this is obviously a very sketchy overview, but it does seem that in some senses that we have a connection between these early Buddhist texts we've been reading, possibly influencing Piro, who influenced the sceptical movement in Greece, which was then recovered by Montaigne, one of the early Renaissance humanists, which then I think is picked up in a way by Nietzsche, and perhaps now finds it way, its way through different currents in, uh, in, in, in contemporary Western thought. And the example I'd like to conclude with as a contemporary practitioner of Pyrrhonism is Arne Ness. Now, Arne Ness was a Norwegian philosopher. He died recently. Um, Arne Ness uh, is regarded as the founder of the deep ecology movement. I heard him speak at Dartington a couple of times and uh, an immensely inspiring and uh, thoughtful and committed man. But um, Ness considered himself a practitioner of Pyrrhonian scepticism. In fact, his uh, dissertation at University in London uh, back in the 60s was on scepticism. And that book is... it's no longer in print, but it's Arnines' scepticism. And he considered it as, as it were, his, his, his philosophical um, uh, epiphany was the discovery of Piro. Um, recently, I've come across a paper which is called The Life and Learning of Arnines' Scepticism as a Survival Strategy. I've not read this paper, I've only just discovered it. It was published a couple of years ago by what looks like a Swedish scholar called Inga Bostad. I can put the reference in. And what she says in, in, in her abstract for the text is that it's obvious that Aniness had his most important philosophical experience in confrontation with the variety of philosophical scepticism known as Pyrrhonism. Ness maintained, however, that he did not defend scepticism as a philosophical position, 
which is kind of its degraded form. I just don't trust or believe anything. That kind of position. And he was concerned to distinguish Pyrrhonism from the inverse of dogmatism associated with the word scepticism today. Ness was primarily preoccupied with the practical implications of this radical form of scepticism in which he thought peace of mind and serious inquisitiveness could be combined. So, again, I think what's valuable here is that this stillness of mind, this ataraxia, is not a sort of mystic suspension of judgment in which you sort of absorb yourself in some sort of non-conceptual state, but, but it is actually the recovery of another foundation from which to live, from which to be curious, inquisitive, inquiring, and also engaged. They are not contradictions at all. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.